My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And in this episode, I'll be taking a look at the recent Blu-ray release of Akira Kurosawa's Ran, a look at the sound design of the film Son of Saul, and a very, very belated look at um, 2015 and my favourite films of that year. I do apologise for the time it has taken to put this show out, but my goodness, someone somewhere didn't like me. I've literally re-recorded a 2015 review show no less than three times only to lose it to various Adobe audition disasters. So um, I, I don't know if I'm not going to go back to Garage Band or stick with Adobe because quite frankly, the last time it happened, I actually wanted to um, defenestrate my computer um, and defenestrate's my new favourite word, look it up. And um, But before I will um, get to all that, I just want to put a shout out too to the passing of a podcasting, podcasting legend in the form of Vince Rotolo over at the B Movie Cast. When I first um, discovered podcasts, the B Movie Cast was one of the first ones that I ever listened to. And over the years, I would duck in and out of it. The thing about the B Movie Cast, it would come out, it was just really stuck, stuck to um, a weekly schedule. I mean, there were hundreds of episodes, and I simply couldn't keep up. Uh, most of the time so uh, sadly however the host um, of that podcast Vince Rotolo has passed away in the past few weeks way before his time and I just wanted to put it out there that um, go back if you have an, an interest in B-movies science fiction in general uh, the B-movie cast was absolutely brilliant a complete delight and very, very sad and my condolences to Vince and his family but moving on um, I'm now going to get on with this episode again I'm sorry it has taken so long but here is a very, 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 very belated look back at 2015. I guess the, the one thing t- to start off with, I don't by any stretch of the imagination think that 2015 was a particularly great year for cinema. Um, I know definitely with 2014 there are films that I would I, I saw in 2014 that I, I genuinely consider to be classics. Uh, none of the films that are in my top 10, um, I think, come under that category i think there were some very very good ones indeed i did see a lot of good films i just didn't see so many that i necessarily thought were great Um, i suppose it's always wise to kind of give an idea of how many i I managed to get through i think in the region of about 60 films that i saw with a 2015 release date i appreciate that some of those films um might have come out in america or other territories in 2015 but my rationale is they had to have had a 2015 release date in the uk regardless of when they came out elsewhere in the world um so i suppose the place to start is at the bottom really with the films which i really couldn't stand um or or were just massively disappointed by and uh, i suppose we'll kick things off with the avengers the age of ultron uh the first avengers film i thought was a lot of fun and it didn't really make much sense to me, but I, I, I could kind of get down with it. I think it had a good mixture of action and humour. Sadly, that is profoundly lacking in the age of Ultron. Um, it felt rushed and very hurried. And when I mean rushed, just the, the level of the CGI, especially at the beginning, it was PlayStation 4 territory. Um, that's probably actually doing a disservice to PlayStation 4. I simply was aware of the fact that don't get me wrong, the first Avengers, I suppose, isn't a practical filmmaking by any stretch of the imagination, but this was just at another level. I found the story to be incredibly dull. It felt more like it was kind of acting as a warm-up for the excellent Civil War film, which I have seen um, quite, quite recently. But overall, um, 
it, it was a massive disappointment to me. Uh, I suppose next on, on the disappointment scale would be Fifty Shades of Grey, which might sound hardly surprising to include that film on the list, but I, I, I'm not, I, I, I haven't read the books, I have to say. I did find it, I used to find it quite funny when I'd be on the tram and I'd be watching girls stood there reading it, and I always imagined what filth they would be kind of having, you know, having at half past eight in the morning on, on the way into work, but this film was shockingly bad. First and foremost, really, because the character of Grey himself, I found him to be so incredibly dull. He seemed to have all these rules in his life, which he doesn't really adhere to. He had this ridiculous premise of this girl who's been through university and is somehow still a virgin. And I do understand that this book was written as a kind of piece of Twilight fan fiction. I think that was the origin of it. And um, yeah, it was woefully bad. Um, it wasn't even fun. And I, I really thought it could actually bad books often make bad simple books often make quite good films I, I, I think I, I think it's Brett Easton Ellis who came up with that observation I'm quite I, I do tend to agree with him but um no, this wasn't it was anything it wasn't erotic it, it wasn't interesting it was just completely dull and for someone who's so rich I, I don't even think you kind of got the idea that this guy had a kind of a particularly fantastic life um Noah Bombach's Mistress America I found offensively annoying I really liked Francis Ha, and and this film, it's that kind of twee, hipstery, New Yorky type stuff that just these people have these really inconsequentially annoying lives, and this kind of quirky outlook on life that, and it had that kind of like I think Little Miss Sunshine vibe to it, where this kind of dysfunctionality and car crash lives are somehow a good thing and it just doesn't resonate with me at all I found it ridiculously annoying it was so trying I think to kind of it, in fact it reminded me of Annie Hall in a way uh, the Woody Allen film but kind of like this was a film inspired by the character of Annie and kind of updated for the modern world and it just completely didn't work for me I can honestly say I hated every single minute of it um Black Hat, which was a Michael Mann techno thriller, which I saw at the cinema and I didn't really like it that much, although I have picked it up on Blu-ray, it was part of them, so I think I went for like three quid on Blu-ray, I'm tempted to go back to it because I really kind of hated it at the time, but I knew perhaps that I might on a repeat viewing grow to like it, and it's a Michael Mann film of course, so I'm a huge fan, but I do need to kind of reassess, but for the time being I'm saying it, was, it wasn't one of the greatest films that I saw. Um, of the end. A documentary that I really found disappointing was Kurt Cobain Montage Effect. Now I wasn't really into, in fact I wasn't into Nirvana at all, I didn't really go through that stage. All I knew was that people who liked Nirvana um, seemed to be the ones who washed the least at school and the music itself didn't do a great deal for me. I couldn't really find, find the time to be bothered by it. It just seemed like a lot of screaming and shouting and this documentary I think kind of shows the fact that I don't think Kurt Cobain really had a great deal to say that was of any interest outside of his music. He wasn't a kind of a Bob Marley figure. I'm sure I'm sure moaning in his songs um, meant something to someone, but it seems really that his life outside of music consisted of taking heroin with Courtney Love, of which a lot of this film consists of. And most of it, it's just painful to watch. It's a desperately sad um, state of affairs. But I don't think this film... I didn't find it very enlightening at all. One of the biggest, um, I think, omissions is clearly David Grohl, who, who isn't in it. He's in the equally 
awful Foo Fighters, another band who I can't stand. I just don't understand the, why white people are so into them. They seem to pack out stadiums in a flash, but I, I, again, totally beyond me. So it's not necessarily the fact that I don't like the music um, that's being spoken about. I, I, I am, like I said, I'm no particular fan of reggae, but the Bob Marley film is a fascinating film. It's someone who really kind of went beyond really simply being a musical star to being something far more interesting. I didn't get that from Montage Effect. I just found it incredibly dull, depressing viewing. Um, the next film, probably Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Again, I own this on Blu-ray. I picked it up for £2, actually, I think, off Amazon. And um, I don't even know why I bought it for £2, but it's, it's strange because Paul Thomas Anderson, the last film, The Master... I really wanted to love that, and I've seen it three times now, and it hasn't done anything for me on on each viewing. And Inherent Vice is the same one where the, the fact that people are going so crazy over it leads me to believe that there must be something about it that I'm missing. But I don't know whether I've got to the age now where I've just become a grouchy old man, and I'm not really particularly interested in why someone thinks this film's great. I just thought it was a load of mumbling nonsense, to be brutally honest with you. Um, I think it's a film that's probably best watched under the influence of drugs or extreme inebriation. Perhaps it might make sense if you were to do that. I don't know. I don't. I don't really fancy taking three, two and a half hours out of my life to get whacked on something just to try and make sense of this film. I might just try and watch it completely sober and 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 see if I can get anything of it. Or go back to do a little bit of digging on it, find it. I can't remember who the author of the book it's based on. Perhaps go back and read some of their novels because perhaps then it might make more sense. I don't know. It didn't do much for me at all. Um, next up would have to be Queen and Country, which was John Borman's follow-up to Hope and Glory. Now, Hope and Glory was a, came out in about 1988, and it's a really brilliantly witty, charming film um, about World War II through the eyes of a young boy. What we get here is a sequel set in the 50s and bizarrely it actually contains some of I think the dad actually who's in Hope and Glory is actually the same is played by the same person now so we're talking about someone who played a character in 1988 is now playing the same character set in a film six years after or no eight years after the original but about 18 years after the film came out and that, that that's only one of the film's minor problems because what Borman's gone for is a kind of mash-esque type kind of farcical comedy the, the problem is this film isn't funny at all uh, it looks like it's been shot on a car park with a green screen and I, I don't remember anyone particularly interested in having a sequel to this film we didn't need a sequel as far as I'm concerned how John Borman actually got it made is beyond me because I don't know where the audience for this is. I noticed it was on Armand White's uh, alternative top 10 list of the year, which hopefully that should say enough about this film. Um, the fact that he's obviously gone out of his way to champion it uh, suggests to me that you're best off leaving it well alone. I was gobsmacked by how awful Queen and Country was. In fact, I was actually embarrassed whilst I was watching it. I was embarrassed watching it imagining taking someone to the cinema to see it thinking it was going to be a good film um it, it did get universal all right releases as well um reviews as well so i don't i don't know what was going on there it's a truly shocking film um john borman can on his day be brilliant he can when he's on an off day be awful i still consider zardos to be brilliant um i know a lot of people will disagree with that but 
this is truly, truly awful, even by his standards. Um, steer well clear of it. It was absolutely terrible. But the, the award, for, I think, for the worst film I saw all year, uh, that, that has actually offended me as I was watching it, was Neil Blomkamp's, Blomkamp, sorry, uh, Chappie. Going back to District 9, which I, th- I think universally, I think people absolutely loved. We, I think we're all hoping for the next... I suppose, James Cameron-esque science fiction uh, film director. And we got Elysium next, which woefully suffered, I think, from the miscasting of um, Matt Damon in the lead. I like Matt Damon, but I, th- I don't think he worked in that film. We had Shouto Copley kind of playing this kind of mercenary shouting machine. And I think things were beginning to slip in Elysium, but I think that film did have a few things going for it. Chappie has nothing going on it other than the fact you have Hugh Jackman uh, looking like Steve Irwin, who's been pumped full of steroids. I I just could not understand how anyone thought this film was a good idea. And Dev Patel as well, who's a great actor, I think. He's got a lot, seems to have a lot of potential. Just look completely lost. And you have this, it's like watching a load of people try and convince themselves that they're not just doing this film for the money. Um, There was action in it, which was completely forgettable. Why people were getting excited about the thought of Neil Blomkamp making an alien film is completely beyond me, because I think he's someone who is in... This feels like the type of film that he's probably been trying to make for quite a while. I know there's a short film that he did that kind of uh, went down a similar road. And I rather feel this is... Some this is what happens sometimes when these directors get this kind of next best thing uh, type or about them and people kind of start chucking money at them. And I hope what this does is cause studios who are thinking about working with him to link him up with a good producer and some script writers who don't let him go off and do his own things. I think he needs reining in. I would imagine that with District 9 there was a kind of a I think he had Peter Jackson on side with him then. I think that there seems to be a bit of control over him, but that seems to have slipped. And he's a director whose film, certainly quality film, is on a massive down trajectory as far as I'm concerned. And he needs to be reined in a little. And I mean, it's with Chappie, on paper, I suppose, this might have worked better, but in execution, it was absolutely shocking. And at over two hours, um, I actually felt like. I actually felt ripped off for my time. I actually, I didn't pay for this, but I suppose I did pay for it in the fact that I rented it through Love Film. But had I bought this film and gone to the cinema, I think I would have blown my own brains out um, with my own stupidity. It is that bad. Um, don't even watch it because you think, oh, you, you, might, you might see clips of it and think, oh, I'm sure it'll be okay. It certainly isn't. This is a horrendous mess of a film that should just be... The, the original negatives or hard drives, whatever this film, should be tracked down and fired into space so that no one can ever think about re-releasing this absolute trash ever again. So with the, the duds out the way, I, we can get on to the ones that nearly made the top ten. And I think had I'd kind of thought about them more or rewatched some of these films again, they might have ousted some of those that, that did finally make it through. But... um First up would be Olivia Alassis's um, The Clouds of Sil Maria. His, his film previous to this, Something in the Air, did absolutely nothing for me. I think it was um, one of those ones he'd probably been, autobiographical films he'd been waiting to make for a long time. Um, I, I personally found it incredibly dull and interesting. Um, this film, beside Juliet Benoist and Kristen Stewart, I thought was a, a, re- a real 
return to film. I know it, uh, return to form. Sorry, I know it's getting a release on Criterion, but um, I was so into this film and so kind of bought into the story and, and the characters that it, it's always, a, I think, a, a sure sign that you're enjoying a film when you you don't do anything like look at your phone or look at the time. You simply kind of enjoy it for what it is and this one could have gone on for another hour and I think I would have still enjoyed it but I really can't wait to see it again Christian Stewart as well I thought it was really brilliant in this um, there is a kind of a and almost a moment it reminded me of Antonioni's L'Aventura when something happens to a character in this film and I wasn't sure how, how much of an, how much of a reference to L'Aventura it was or indeed if it was it even had that in mind at all but it should give you some idea I suppose of of how this film felt, it, it could, if it was made in the 60s by Fellini and Antonio or anyone like that, I, it, it wouldn't have looked out of place. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, next up would be the documentary Cartel Land. This was an interesting film about the drugs war going on currently on the border between Mexico and America. And it's very easy to see how politicians especially like the donald trump and it's something the republican party um through things like fox news i noticed have politicized this issue to the point where it, it seems like the actual issue itself um has been somewhat lost i i just think it's one of those things that you perhaps if, if you hear someone like sean hannity from fox news going down to the border to see what's going on you instantly dismiss it but obviously there is a real issue there and i think this film kind of sheds a light onto it my, my my criticism of it would be it's produced by Catherine Bigelow and it's a very heavily produced documentary I rather feel it reminded me of um, uh, Dennis Villeneuve's uh, Sicario in a way in some respects and it, the fact that it looks that produced I think could almost be a a notch against it because when it when, when we when you're seeing that level of direction in a documentary I'm, I always instantly question the validity of what I'm watching however that all being said Cartel Land is a very depressing film in many respects it shows the, the drug issue from two sides one the American side where you have a I suppose a kind of vigilante group I suppose if that's the right word to describe them but they're a group of self-appointed border guards um, headed by um, a guy called um, Tim Naylor Foley, who he seems to have watched quite a lot of action films. I'm, I'm, I can't remember if he has any military service, but he certainly dresses like he's in the American Special Forces and he walks around the border armed to the teeth with some friends um, trying to arrest illegal immigrants who come through. And when, when they do come through, calls the border guard and they come down and get them a lot of these people there's no denying a lot of these people are extremely dangerous individuals they are drug um, runners and what you get the sense of is that this is someone who feels like he's been failed by his government um, it, it, and it's manifested itself in proportioning blame to his ills in life with illegal immigration and of course that's an incredibly pertinent issue that's currently happening in in Europe at the moment and I'm, I'm not of the opinion that people like him their voice shouldn't be heard um, 
you know, if, if you were looking for work and you were not able to gain employment, especially through things like the construction industry, because you had people who you know, were giving jobs to illegal immigrants in, in your country, I can see how that would cause you to find, I think, a, a genuine resentment towards those people. But I think it's more, obviously, it's not the fault of the people who are getting the jobs. It's the, it's the, the fault of the person giving them. But Nato and East guys... Uh, walk around the border and on the other side we have a, uh, a chap called Dr. Jose Morales who is a physician who has basically set up a paramilitary organisation to kick drug lords out of towns and he does this by in a very Che Guevara-esque manner going around to the villages arming people and getting them to kick the guys out. The issue is that he becomes a law unto himself he is the judge, jury and executioner in a lot of cases quite shocking to see the fact that this is someone who dispenses justice um, there and then and justice is a bullet in the head and of course what happens is the more the government gets to get involved um, so does the level of corruption involved in these organisations and what cartel land leaves you with is a sense that nothing's changed and we, the war on drugs uh, is, is an abject failure, there's no denying it. It costs billions, and the, the, the byproduct seems to be just an endless cycle of misery. And I think it's an interesting cartel land, it's a very real manifestation of that issue. It just shows the utter horrendous destruction that drugs cause on people's lives. Unfortunately, it's become such a politicised issue that you now have the likes of when you know, Donald Trump says he's going to build a wall between Mexico and America. People don't think that's a ridiculous idea. And that in of itself, I think, um, is an extremely troubling uh, coming direction that politics has had. And he's also said he's going to deport 12 million um, people from America back to Mexico and, you know, whether or not that happens whether or not he becomes uh, president it, it remains to be seen but I, th I think Cartel Land is a film that I recommend with a couple of caveats one being the fact that it does feel very very produced and I think in a sense it does end up slightly glorifying the image that these people have of themselves. Naylor is completely aware of how he looks and I think the film doesn't do anything to convince him otherwise that he, he he certainly looks the part as it were and i also think that it, it's not a film for the faint-hearted either there are some, some scenes in it which are incredibly uncomfortable and hard to watch so definitely um, give it a go i know it's on netflix and um, it was on bbc i played for a while but um yeah definitely well worth checking out okay next up would be thomas vince burr's far from the manning crowd i've already spoken about that film on another episode so Go and check that out. Still think this film's really good and beautiful to watch as well. The Blu-ray really did do it justice. Um, another one I really enjoyed was the film Phoenix. Now, this is actually coming out in the Criterion Collection quite soon, or it might even actually have been already been released. But um, this was another film which I think on another day would easily have made my top ten. I really want, I'm really looking forward to watching it again. Um, this was directed by a guy called Christian Petzold, and it's about a, a woman who comes back from the death camps into Germany and has somehow manages to survive and decides to go back to her husband who 
doesn't actually recognise her um, because of, she's had um, reconstruction on her face due to a disfigurement that a bullet has caused and he's actually unable to recognise who she is and he manages to try and convince her to be his wife in order to defraud um, so I think it's like at the bank or something to get money I, th I think it's in her estate I'm not I'm not entirely sure but it's this incredibly uncomfortable film a, a brilliant I think um, kind of twist to it you know the fact that obviously this guy is completely unaware of the fact that this that this is his wife and it had I think one of the most shockingly profound endings to any film that I've seen in a long time I sort of feel like it deserves a lot more attention than it's got actually Phoenix and uh, I, like I said I, I'm glad Criterion have picked it up because I'm really really looking forward to seeing this one again um, next up would be a Spanish film that I saw called Marshland this kind of reminded me of the first series of True Detective in, in some respects and it was set during the Franco era Spain which is a period of Spanish history that I'm really interested in. It is I suppose in many respects a fairly standard uh, whodunit type thriller um, directed by um, a guy called Alberto Rodriguez who I've never seen any of his films before as far as I'm aware. Yeah really really good. Uh, it was another one of those films where it kind of just absolutely flew by for me which is always as I said before a good sign that you're kind of invested into something the next one I'd have to go on this was a trip to the cinema which would soon um, kind of stay long in the mind which was this new adaption of Macbeth by Justin Kurzel and I've just seen the trailer in fact for Assassin's Creed and I'm always a bit sniffy about computer game adaptions but having now seen Macbeth I might actually hold out some hope um, this was the most unrelentingly depressing film that I saw all year. At times it out Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones for its sheer levels of barbarity. You had everything from obviously gruesome murders to children being burnt at the stake. Macbeth isn't hardly a comedy anyway, but um, this took it to another level and it had this kind of apocalypse now style direction to it um, that was completely absorbing. Um, my only caveat to be really with the would be how Lady Macbeth's um, treatment in the film, she is really reduced to a bit part player. I don't necessarily think you can um, trash the film on that alone. This is of course an adaption and I'm, I'm all for seeing different directors and different artists take a, a stab at established material. Um, it is brilliant though, um, it needs to be seen I think in, in the biggest, loudest way possible. Um, I did thoroughly enjoy it, even though it was utterly hideous. Um, a pigeon sat on the branch reflecting on existence was... I had no idea that the fact that this was filmed um, kind of belonged to a, a, tr a trilogy by Roy Anderson, and I'm, I'm, I still, I'm still yet to seek those out, but I actually laughed a lot at this film. Um, it's not... I, I suppose in a way it is a comedy, but it's, it's a series of vignettes, really, that are shot through the static camera, and that it's absurdist humour, surreal, quite shocking at times, incredibly bizarre at others, but I was completely down with it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I, I did feel like a bit of a poncy film snob laughing at some of it because I sort of thought if I was in the cinema with people who were laughing out loud at some of the things I was laughing at, they would probably annoy me, but because I was on my own, um, I'm, I'm going to give myself a pass. So do check A Pigeon Who Sat on the on the branch reflecting on existence. Um, Steven Spielberg, I thought, returned to form Bridge of Spies starring Tom Hanks. Having been to Berlin last year, I, I kind of have an affinity with that city now. And I I've been there before briefly. Um, I went to the Bergheim once, but that was 
well, anyone who's been to Bergheim will know the type of evening that I had there. But yeah, this was a thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining film. Um, Mark Rylance, I mean, where, where's he suddenly uh, appeared from? All the same. The only thing I know is he, he, he he's from a town nearby where I used to live in, in Kent. But I thoroughly enjoyed Bridge of Spies. There's something reassuring sometimes about watching Steven Spielberg films where you know exactly what you're going to get. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. I'm binge, uh, binge reading, sorry, a lot of Jean Le Carre books at the moment, which is just so unrelentingly depressing to see a kind of a, a spy film that uh, kind of had a good ending of sorts, um, was something of a, a bit of a breath of fresh air, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the anthology film Wild Tales would be one, which I know has just come out on... Um, on, on Netflix, anthology films for me don't necessarily work a lot. What suffered with Wild Tales is that the first story involves a pilot deliberately crashing a plane um, full of people straight into his uh, mother and father's house. Um, it's one of the most, it's genuinely hilarious, but of course what happened last year wasn't hilarious when we had that German um, pilot who crashed a plane in the Alps. So this film I think suffered a little bit because uh, obviously it kind of touched a nerve perhaps. Um, but it was it is brilliantly funny. It's a film about truly awful people having really bad things done to them, and it's hilarious. Uh, I think it probably, it's an Argentinian film, I think it probably resonates a lot more with the audience it's um, directed at, which is of course the Argentine people. I know there's been a lot of kind of soul searching going on in that country, um, and I understand this is something of a kind of a tonic for that, so definitely do look out. I'm, sometimes I find with um, wild um, anthology films, they don't necessarily work for me. I think I kind of like a more linear structure. It's not a linear structure, but uh, if I'm going to watch a film, I want to watch kind of one story. And this is kind of very, you know, it's very clearly divided up into, into short parts. Each one is self-contained, but it does work as a whole, I think, which is the crucial thing. Um, next up was a documentary as well called, called Future Shock, um, the story of 2000 AD. 2000 AD was a staple of my childhood. Um, how on earth my parents thought it was acceptable to buy 2000 AD for me um, is beyond me. Um, I've resubscribed to the to the comic in light in having seen this um, documentary, and I still don't understand how my parents thought it was acceptable for me to watch it. But 2000 AD is a brilliant film. It's about two hours, and it is quite long to be fair. But if you have an interest in graphic novels, um, this is definitely well worth watching. It was sort of 2000. Obviously, it's the home of Judge Dredd, and there is a lot of dread action in there. And some really interesting facts about the character that the, you know, he was kind of based on Margaret Thatcher. And what you get as well, this is kind of like a punk comic where you had like guys basically who wanted to stir things up a little bit. And certainly um, 2000 AD did that. I suppose the next one would be a film which was just a massive, massive release, uh, relief, sorry. And that, of course, was The Force Awakens. I, there's no denying it. I think everyone was ridiculously excited about it. Um, I was cautiously optimistic. I've... I'm not a huge fan of J.J. Abrahams. I think he's made some truly awful. I mean, Super 8 is just one of my worst films ever. Um, the new Star Trek films I, I didn't like at all. But he seems to manage to have finally settled down a little bit. And what he does in The Force Awakens, he actually gives this film time to breathe. The fact that George Lucas has had nothing to do with it, I think is a good thing. That, that he, was, he was, I, mean, I, I don't know, pardon the pun, but he was a force unto himself. He simply didn't have... The people around him, I think, steering him in the right direction. Of course, we had the prequels. I went back and watched all the Star Wars films in preparation for this, for The Force Awakens. And those prequels are just truly awful for all the reasons that The Force Awakens isn't. You can actually tell that this film has a physicality to it. The characters actually seem to be vaguely interesting. 
the action seems to have weight. People dying and people being killed actually means something. Um, and it just has a gravitas that I didn't think was there in the prequels. Um, I'm really genuinely excited about the next ones. Um, hopefully, having, now having seen this film again, it will get a proper Blu-ray release because I, I, I get the impression that the, the, the release we've just got is a complete vanilla one waiting for um, the proper release to come out at the end of the year, perhaps. But definitely The Force Awakens was certainly a relief, to say the least. Um, Beasts of No Nation, this was a, a Netflix, one of Netflix um, self-produced films. And um, yeah, what, what a brilliant way to kick things off. I was always a little bit dubious when I heard that they were going to be producing their own uh, films because the, the, the strange one is, is I mean how do you know how, how do you rate this film as being a success because there's no box office uh, mercifully there isn't any box office to compare it to and one of the things which really does my head in about the kind of film criticism world is this obsession with sort of saying that oh this film's a flop and the fact that that can cause people not to go and watch it and I always kind of reference John Carter in that which was a really entertaining Disney film that got panned wouldn't make any money and it seemed that the 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 main criticism of the fact was that it didn't make any money um, regardless of the film and I think what what this does in a way it kind of frees us up from that baggage and you can just take it on its own terms and Beast of No Nation I thought was really good Idris Elba um, he's very much I think a divisive character I know a lot of people really don't enjoy his work I certainly do and I thought he was actually terrifying uh, in this film but uh, yeah thoroughly brilliant and I'm, I'm glad that they were doing this and I hope that we get to see a lot more from them Slow West was a Michael Fassbender Western, which I really enjoyed. I think it actually reminded me in some ways of the computer game Red Dead Redemption, and that's an entirely good thing. Um, director John McLean, I think, does a fantastic job with the Western. The Western's one of those where it kind of comes in and out of fashion. It kind of comes in and out of fashion every now and then. Um, we kind of have revisionist Westerns that prop up, and this felt like just a good old-fashioned Western. I think is, is, is what I liked about it. Um, Michael Fassbender is such an interesting actor um, and in this he kind of completely holds the screen and I was gripped from beginning to end with it and um, yeah I'm, I'm interested I mean John McLean the director I mean, he used to be in the Beats band and you know I'm familiar with his music and um, I'll be interested to see kind of where his career goes because I think this was um, a really interesting directorial debut uh, we had then Selma, which was one thing I couldn't get away from was the kind of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I don't mean that in a kind of derisive uh, to be derisory. Um, but Selma was, I thought, a fantastically overrated film. The, the second I saw Oprah Winfrey's name on it, I began to uh, perhaps fear for the worst. I do tend to agree with Quentin Tarantino on the point of the direction of this film. It, it lacks any, I think, directorial flair at all. I think it's very, it's a very flat film in, in some respects, but that's not to say that Ava Devari is doing a bad job with it. I, I think it's just quite pedestrian in this direction, but pedestrian direction doesn't really, isn't really an issue when the film itself was so interesting. And I, I, I you know, following kind of Martin Luther King's struggle amongst, to raise awareness of black issues in 1960s America and the ending of this film did give me goosebumps um, it, it, was, it was quite incredibly uplifting and the performances all around I thought were quite brilliant Pixar's Inside Out as well was another delight I think um, Pixar gets it 
right a lot more than it gets it wrong. And Inside Out felt like a really solid return to form. And I'm glad, it, 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 crucially for me, it was, an, it was an original film. This wasn't a sequel to some of the lesser works. I mean, the Cars films, I think, probably represent the lowest uh, in terms of quality of the Pixar uh, output. Certainly, I think the Toy Story films actually get better somehow. Um, but Pixar, yeah, felt like a good solid return to their original filmmaking. And I was, I was thoroughly, thoroughly charmed by it. 45 years was Andrews Hayes follows up um, film to Weekend. Charlotte Rampling, I think this is possibly, I don't think she's ever been better than she's actually been in this film. My only, my, my slight caveat about this film is I found Tom Courtney's character quite annoying. But there was something I thought that really, really resonated um, with me about this film. And it was that kind of idea that you kind of look back on your life and a single thing can make you reevaluate everything that you thought you knew. And this film absolutely nails it. And it's that nagging doubt that you have in you. And we have it with, with relation to everything, with our work, with our private lives. That nagging doubt that things could have been different. And I think 45 years absolutely gets that spot on. And the ending of this film was I so expected the, the film to go into a certain direction. And I wanted it to give me that reassurance possibly at the end. And it didn't. And I think I liked it a lot more for that. Um, I can't wait to go back to it. It has just actually appeared on Netflix. So I can certainly recommend anyone to, to watch it. And then, last but not least, was Jack Villeneuve's uh, Enemy. And this just about made my... Uh, it, it really... I think it was one of the first films that got released in 2015. And it's one of those doppelganger films that has Jake Gyllenhaal kind of seeing himself around a town, which periodically seems to be being attacked by giant spiders. It is as crazy as it sounds. It's also one of the most unsettling films that I saw. Um, helped in many respects by a quite brilliant soundtrack that really creeped me out. I have a massive fear of spiders. It's completely and utterly irrational. Um, they always never fail to uh, put the fear of God in me. And what I was actually doing during the entire film was like begging for spiders not to appear in it. Now, if you know the ending of this film, which I'm probably just giving away by hinting so much, um, you'll, you'll probably guess what might happen. But yeah, Enemy was a really... Um, unsettling and deeply uh, troubling experience I found actually I, I just don't know quite what to have made of it all I know is that I enjoyed it in many respects it kind of felt like a Philip K Dick um, story I know it is actually based on a book by someone called Jose um, Saramango but uh, yeah I was I was pretty much gripped by it and uh, my only disappointment with the blu-ray didn't look great at all it looked um, very soft and muddy and um, I don't know, obviously they might have been going for that look, but obviously it might be an issue with the remastering, of the mastering of it, sorry. But certainly, yeah, I thought there was room for improvement in that department. Okay, so now we will move on to my top 10 of 2015. I think it's important to note that um, this top 10, the only, it's only the top two that I would say are my kind of first favourite and second favourite. Uh, the, the, the ones in between, I think, um, are interchangeable, really. So we begin at number 10 then, and this was a documentary which coming into an election year in America like we are, I think, is um, 
extremely pertinent and it was the film directed by Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville which was called Best of Enemies about two a series of public debates um, on NBC net on so the ABC network during the 60s um, between Gore Vidal and William F Buckley Jr and the kind of the subsequent aftermath of these two men's uh, various encounters to help us extract meaning from these conventions two of America's most eloquent commentators William Buckley and Gore Vidal Bill Buckley was the first modern conservative to see that ideological debates were cultural debates Mr Buckley do you think miniskirts are in good taste? On you, I think they are. The people at ABC asked him, well, is there anybody you wouldn't go on with? And he said, the only one I can think of is Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal is one of America's most successful and distinguished writers. We are all prostitutes in one sense or another, ethically, if not sexually. For Buckley, Vidal was the devil. I am a happy warrior. I'm in battle. I'm enjoying it. He represented everything that was going to moral hell. These were two visions of America clashing. Each thought that the other was quite dangerous. All this security makes me very nervous, because it's necessary, apparently. If Buckley were not taken out, his ideas would take down the nation. The country is being split at the seams. It's almost as if they were matter and antimatter. Say that again. Freedom breeds inequality. Now I'll say it a uh, third uh, time. No, yeah, twice yeah. is enough. He's always to the right and almost always in the wrong. I confess that anything complicated confuses Mr. Vidal. A grotesque example. There's nothing feigned. They really do despise one another. Now listen, you the right of Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop or calling I'll names you and in let's your get... goddamn face. And let's... You'll stay plastered. This is William F. Buckley Jr. in New York. Perfect. <laughs> I, I guess this. What I really enjoyed about this film was watching two people who are obviously on an intellectual plane that is far greater than my own, not using the type of language at each other that I would use if I was in a debate with someone who I strongly disagreed with. Um, eventually, I mean, I suppose not to give too much away, eventually um, one of them does crack and, and, and says something which um, is, is rather regrettable. This film was absolutely brilliant. It was hilariously funny um, to begin with. It was also hugely entertaining. Um, I, I was, I'm familiar with the work of Gore Vidal. I wasn't, I'd heard of William F. Buckley Jr. Um, but I hadn't really, I hadn't really seen much of him before I'd seen this film. And it does, it's one of these films, it does rely a lot on um, archival footage and uh, I have a slight issue with a lot of documentaries, I think sometimes when they feel so they feel so produced and there is an element I think of Best of Enemies it's quite a flashy documentary and um, by that I mean you can really kind of tell that uh, it's being what I think I mean is it, it's quite heavily stylized but it doesn't detract from the I think the brilliance of the two men it's trying it, it's actually conveying I was completely engrossed by the film and it's interesting because I think political debates now I find them quite dull a lot of the time. I, I think there are, we don't have, I, th I, 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 I can't think of anyone really whose opinion politically I am that drawn to. We do have a lot of people like, you know, I, I suppose 
to even mention her in the same breath as these two, someone like Anne Coulter, who I just feel is has none of the charm and the intelligence that either of these two. And a lot of the time people like Anne Coulter, that they're part of this kind of the truth doesn't really matter. They will literally say anything which I, I don't think is having a political debate. I think once you kind of really get into the nitty-gritty of policies and um, the, the, the differences between political parties, there's a far more interesting conversation to have than simply making outlandish, ridiculous claims that get you a lot of followers on Twitter. And I think that the thing about Best of Enemies is it kind of shows... It, it was very much a watermark, um, these types of debates, in how television networks went around presenting such topics. And I... I, I I think it's actually been all downhill from there, really. But Best of Enemies was... I think it's on Netflix at the moment. I can certainly recommend watching it because you don't even have to... Re you don't even have to have heard, heard of Gore Vidal, William Buckley Jr. or particularly have an interest in politics, I think, to find this film thoroughly entertaining. And um, just... Just the aftermath of this film, I think it was. A, I found it a lot more poignant than I actually thought I did. So definitely well worth checking out. I guarantee you that at some point, everything's going to go south on you. Ready? And you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Commander, Mark is dead. We have to go. Yeah. Now, you can either accept that, or you can get to work. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates and to NASA and to the entire world. But I'm still alive. Surprise. Here's the rub. It's going to be four years for another mission to reach me. And I'm going to have designed the last 31 days. So I got to make water and grow food on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, then none of this matters anyway. We've got an incoming message. Mind cut. <laughs> Mark Watney is still alive. Woo! In your face, Neil Armstrong. There must be some kind of way out of here. Okay, so let's do the math. I have enough food to last for 50 days. He's going to starve to death long before we can help. So I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. He's 50 million miles away from home. He's totally alone. What the hell is he thinking right now? I am the greatest botanist on this planet. I know how to save Mark Watney. But we need the Hermes crew. We either have a high chance of killing one or a low chance of killing six. I'm not risking their lives. It's bigger than one person. No. It's not. Number nine was a film which I think marks a return to form of a director and... Um, yes, I'm talking about Ridley Scott and The Martian. Um, I, I listened to the audiobook of The Martian um, before I saw the film. And the audiobook uh, is, is, is one of the best audiobooks I've ever actually listened to. Um, just the, the quality of the narration and how thoroughly entertaining and uplifting I found it to be. And I was really, really pleased when The Martian ended, not because it was ending and the... Uh, I was going to be able to escape the cinema, but because they seem to nail the the humour and the tone of the book so well, 
and I don't mean obviously, and you know, you, everyone knows my my thoughts on adaptions, and I, I thought they adapted it brilliantly. It does omit um, a fair fair amount of things that happen, but um, I've always got a lot of time for Matt Damon. Um, possibly uh, that might sound slightly unfashionable. He doesn't seem to be an actor who. He seems to be an actor, actually, sorry, who, who, who does attract a lot of unfair criticism. But I thought he was perfect for this. Um, he seemed to kind of get the humility of um, Mark Watney and just nail that character's kind of steadfast refusal to, to let nature uh, take him. Um, there were a few a few films, a, little, a couple of false notes, perhaps. I, did, I thought the casting of Sean Bean was a bit of a strange one. Um, he seemed a little bit out of place. Jeff Daniels, I thought, was absolutely excellent. And the decision as well to change um, the character of Vincent Kapoor um, from uh, Cheatwell, um, Ila Jofo, I think that's how you pronounce his name. I, th- I know I talked about him in 2012, but I thought that was a bit of a cop-out um, taking, to turn that character. You know, he's obviously Indian in the um, in the book. I, I don't want to get, kind of get bogged down in the kind of representation route, but I, I did think that was a... A poor choice but all being said I thought this is Ridley Scott's best film in many years um, he, he seems to do better the less complicated the story he's trying to tell um, and yes I will finish that retrospective believe me I have been it's it's still there I, I keep getting emails about it I'm still I still have every intention of doing it so don't so don't worry but um, he, he does he does better the the when he has less things to become distracted by and less characters to kind of think that he has to kind of shoehorn into his films and the martian looks incredible um i'm a huge fan of 3d as i've said before and just seeing the kind of the the landscapes and the fact that the film had a real physicality to it i know a lot of the they went out to the desert to film and kind of added things in post and the it's there to see Uh, and the, the, the other the bits i loved as well was you know back on the, the kind of the ship that's kind of going between Earth. You've got kind of Jessica, Jessica Chastain who's on this this Ares uh, spaceship. I just loved how it looked. It was this kind of it, completely believable. And I don't know if you know if, if they were to go to Mars, they would build such a uh, such a craft. But I, I, I bought into this world, um, and I loved being in it. It could have gone on for a bit longer. It was a real feel good film. I, I think what what the book captures and the film gets as well is it's this this is this is one man and science versus nature and we don't see him praying we don't see him kind of you know crossing himself or we don't see everyone back on earth the thing that's going to save him is good old-fashioned chemistry and physics and it was just a joy really watching uh, these people try and work out how to kind of save him and I, I don't it's, it's not a spoiler to say that Mark Watney survives this ordeal because The Martian isn't that film it's it is supposed to leave you with a feeling that you know, in times of adversity you know, we can overcome these issues and it, it was quite brilliant because we, a lot of people have kind of said it's a castaway set in space and I guess to a degree it is but um you, a good story it doesn't matter and I've said this again as well I'm becoming slightly bored of, of, of even saying it but a good story is a good story and if, if, if it's if it's the same thing you've seen many many times before you will forgive it if things like you like the characters and it's well directed 
and this film I, I think ticks all those boxes it's just I suppose to say it's a uh, kind of a fluffy film I suppose it's probably doing it a slight disservice but I think what The Martian is it is just a film that you can chuck on for a couple of hours and just thoroughly enjoy and I think that's that's it's been lacking a little bit in Ridley Scott films um, for a while um, I mean I will get to it and talk about the, the madness that the, that is the, the Exodus film that he's made but overall um, The Martian I thought it was a real class affair from beginning to end I really enjoyed the score as well by Harry Gregson Williams um, it had some great themes in it again subscribe to my Spotify uh, soundtrack players because I put, I put the songs I enjoyed most of it on that but and it, it did really well at the box office as well and I think that's a, that's a good thing for Ridley Scott I know he seems to kind of I think even if, even when he makes uh, flops, he still manages to um, get massive amounts of money to make films. But I think it had a budget of about 100 million. It made over 600 as well. And I, I thought it was the rare instances where you had a kind of a blockbuster that had a little bit more than just kind of special effects to kind of woo you. So definitely The Martian was uh, Probably the film I enjoyed most, although I wouldn't say it was my favourite film, I definitely think it was, it was the most fun I had at the cinema. She was highly intelligent, the most intelligent person I knew. She was so utterly authentic. Amy, just give us a smile and then we can turn the camera off. Do you promise? <laughs> she had such an emotional relationship to music. You're becoming an artist in the public eye. The more people see of me, the more they'll realise that all I'm good for is making music. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. She was one of the truest artists I ever heard. The world wanted a piece of her. Amy was a girl that just wanted to be loved. So I fell in love with someone who I would have died for. And that's like a real drug, isn't it? This is someone who is trying to disappear. The thing is, I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I'm not a girl trying to be a star. Okay, so next up is Asif Kapita's documentary, Amy, the story, uh, I suppose the tragic tale of the singer Amy Winehouse. Now, I wasn't a particularly huge fan of Amy Winehouse's music. I have to, I think I could recognise the genius, and certainly this film 
uh, made me appreciate it a lot more. But this was easily the most depressing film that I saw all year. And to give some context, when I went to go and watch this film, I was not feeling in a particularly great way. I, I literally, I think I had some time off work, but I just wasn't feeling very well. And I decided to drag myself to the cinema. And I sat down um, with about, it must have been, a, but there was about another 10 people in the cinema. And this film began, and it, it was quite funny because the person sat next to me turned and said, I'm already dreading the end of this film. And it, it, we kind of laughed in a kind of, I suppose, a kind of nervous laughter because this is the, the awful thing when you see the film beginning with some um, mobile phone footage of a kind of a young, healthy looking Amy Winehouse and her friends just practicing singing. You know, it was an instant reminder this film is ultimately going to be incredibly tragic. Now, the one thing that struck me about Amy was the fact that a lot of this film is, as I said, uh, mobile phone footage. And that, I, I think, is quite important because one, it gives you kind of an intimacy into this film, which simply having people talking about these events doesn't give you. And I also think that Amy Winehouse is one of the first artists of, of a certain generation to die, whereby we would find out about her death through, through, through having it on a mobile device. We would consume her music through mobile devices. She is, I suppose, I don't know, I suppose millennials is slightly, um, yeah, I, I, I can't see that, or that, that age group perhaps being so much into her, but there was something about her and she was, I think she kind of captured a, young, a, a younger audience who would grow up seeing her life and hearing her music through smartphones and there was a kind of a link that I made when I was watching it where I thought that this is someone who lived and died in in a kind of a excruciatingly awful public way and to kind of to kind of go into her life in this way was harrowing to say the least. I mean, there is a good 20 minutes of this footage consists of her and her husband basically doing every possible drug you can possibly imagine, whilst you hear over the soundtrack her friends and her managers and the people around her reminiscing and quite obviously painfully going back to these times and the helplessness that was, that kind of really consumed the situation because here was, a person who, I mean, I, I remember it clearly, there would be pictures of her in the paper and, you know, ghoulish obsession with when she was going to die. She was just a madman. And you see it in this film, so just public figures mocking her when quite clearly she had drug addiction problems, mental health problems. He was a really unfortunate person and a brilliant counterpoint to this film is um, the documentary I'm Still Here of Joaquin Phoenix where it's, I, I personally think it's a really good film and I, I'm, it, 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 what amazed me about that was how cruel people were to Joaquin Phoenix. This was someone who was having a breakdown apparently and it was almost like a sport and I think it's Jay Leno or someone in, in the Amy film says, he makes some comment and says, oh, but she's insane. And all the, the, the crap, you know, the audience starts laughing and you just think you absolute heartless bastard because clearly 
she doesn't need to be pointed at and the level of intrusion into her life is is terrible and i think much has been made of the finger pointing that goes on in this film all the perceived finger pointing um that goes on in this film most notably uh amy reinhouse's father mitch um i think what i personally took out of it he, he was someone who was simply completely out of his depth with the situation that arose he i think failed to really see the fact that his daughter was probably doing most of what she was doing simply to please him i i, I think he kind of confused her willingness to please him as being her desire to kind of go on stage and carry on this kind of almost kind of double life she was leading because she had this very public persona but here was someone who simply wasn't made for that type of fame and the result is ultimately deeply harrowing and tragic um it is a quite brilliant film i i think i, I wouldn't I don't think it demands to be seen, but I certainly think that, it, and certainly the replayability value of it um, is possibly limited. Um, it's an experience to say the least. Um, his Senna film, I thought, I've watched that a couple of times, and it, he, he seems to be someone who I think absolutely nails tonally how to kind of approach these subject matters. And with Senna, I found that to be, I found it quite an uplifting film in some respects. I think this is the fact that his death, um, ultimately tragic, some good came from it. Um, the fact that there hasn't been, some good did come from it in terms of kind of safety within Formula One. With, with Amy Winehouse, there's nothing really that you could kind of say, oh, you know, she, she was just a, a, a girl who died way too young. And it's, awful i think when we live in the world the, the, the age of social media where so you know someone dies and people just make offhand glib comments like you know oh you know just another junkie or something like that and to those people i think they should watch this film just to kind of see the fact that you aside from the lurid headlines there is someone who obviously has feelings behind there and perhaps in a way perhaps this film should act as something of a wake-up call for how we deal with public figures I, I dare say it won't um th th they always seem to be having this kind of ravenous fixation with the cult of celebrity and I, there will be another amy winehouse figure in in, in the future and i, I don't think I, there are lessons to be learned in this film i just don't think anyone's actually ever going to learn them few days you're going to be the human component in a turing test one day the ai's are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossils hello how do you feel about her oh man she's amazing you're impressed <laughs> yes do you want to be my friend of course now the question is how does she feel about you? Do you think about me when we are together? Did you give her sexuality as a diversion tactic? This is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. Fine. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? <laughs> does Ava actually like you? Or is she pretending to like you? 
Okay, so next up was Alex Garland's Ex Machina, and what a brilliant surprise this film was. Um, firstly, I have to really say I think Oscar Isaac could become could fast becoming my favourite actor. Um, I loved him in Star Wars. I thought it was absolutely fantastic in this. Um, he just seemed to nail this character in a way, and it, it, it had it for me. The scene of the year is in Ex Machina, and I think probably people who know the scene and know what I'm talking about. And it involves um, some dancing and uh, Oscar Isaac busting some busting some moves. But this was brilliant—a science fiction film that uh, was really about concepts rather than wall-to-wall -wall spectacle and. I think AI is becoming a really prominent issue at the moment. I've currently been reading quite a few books about the subject and it seems to be this thing that we kind of like dismiss as kind of making, you know, these kind of robots overthrowing us. But in reality, I think it is a genuinely worrying topic that we're not talking about enough. Um, if we do go down the whole of making these these beings that are self-aware and have that level of intelligence that we do we could be asking for trouble and ex machina i think rather expertly uh raises this issue um it was a massive surprise to me i'm um, domino hall gleason again it must be something to do with the i'm sure the i'm sure whoever was doing the casting for for star wars there might have cast their eye over this but there's a brilliant i think kind of sense that a bit of narrative misdirection that completely threw me with this film because I, I was convinced it was going in one direction and it kind of went another and Alex Garland sometimes I feel struggles to finish his films in a, a satisfying way certainly I think he's got a lot better Dread and Never Let Me Go I think are two really great films that he's written but before that with kind of things like Stardust and 28 um sorry um Sunshine and 28 Days Later, I, I felt the ending of those films really did a disservice to the films overall. But here, you know, he's directing, he's producing, he's writing, and it's it's a really interesting work. And I hope that he gets to, I, I hope that he gets to make more films this way because I think he knows his audience really well, and I think he's kind of settled into a groove that I want him to stay in. Um, X Machina, the the thing that I loved about the film was the location, this kind of super uh, rich, pristine house, which inside you have this scientific kind of sociological experiment going on that its implications are so huge, yet the film is so intimate that I think it allows you to think, I think it allows you to digest the themes of it a lot more subtly than if you had it kind of set out in a huge city I mean, I think something like iRobot or something like that but a, a really good score as well um, by uh, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow I, I found it very unsettling the, the film 
constantly had me guessing as to what was going on. And it's a film about nuance as well, a, a, a raised voice, uh, you know, a, a look, a, a little moment between sentences that just kind of kept you on the edge of your seat and kept you on your toes as well. And um, yeah, I, I've watched it. Tw- I've, I've watched it three times now um, at Smackener, and it holds up on repeat viewings. Um, I think, yes, it has, I suppose, a bit of a twist ending, but I think the fact that every time I've gone back to it, I've got something else at it, out of it. So definitely um, a science fiction film that doesn't have a ridiculous budget, that really is one for the brain, um, and it, it works. It just, it holds you from beginning to end, and I'm just actually really annoyed. I'm just kicking myself, actually, that I didn't go to the cinema to watch this, but never mind. Okay, so next up was Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, his follow-up to his brilliant film, The Act of Killing. Um, There's not a lot I can really say about this film, um, other than the fact that I think, along with The Act of Killing, I think it could be... It's almost like they're they're more than just films. I think they are that important. um, as, As kind of documents, really into the psyche of evil and this subject which they're around which is the 1960s Indonesian genocide the look of silence is from the perspective of the victim not and and the perpetrator more but it's, it's more on the side of the victim as opposed the act of killing was looking at the perpetrators it's almost unwatchable on the fact that it, it kind of follows the same kind of i suppose um format as shower by it doesn't show you through kind of archival footage what went on. It, it just leaves it for the people that committed it and who witnessed it to tell it. And it's ultimately unbelievably harrowing and scary and sad and terrible. And I think the, the best thing I could recommend anyone doing, if you really want to kind of hear a, a, a brilliant dissection of these films, is go on the Sam Harris podcast because he interviews Joshua Oppenheimer. And, and, and the pair talked for about two hours about these films. And I, I can honestly say, I, I think my issue is I find it hard to articulate really my true feelings about these films and especially The Look of Silence, which I found so much more upsetting than The Act of Killing, which if you've seen The Act of Killing, um, that might sound like a bit of a daft statement, but I found this really, really hard to watch. But utterly compelling i was completely transfixed by it i i I need a bit of space i think to go back but i'm certainly going to watch them over i i want to kind of perhaps in a couple of months i'm going to go back and watch them again over the weekend just to kind of digest and think about them a little bit more and i i think to try and kind of condense my uh, thoughts and feelings on this in kind of like a five minute kind of soundbite isn't really going to do any people any favors I, i would say though that this is i think it represents what film, the brilliance of films and the importance of film in bringing subjects like this to the masses. And this is this is as much a film as it is, I think, a historical document that will be kind of discussed and dissected for from now until the end of time. I just can't see a time when people won't be interested in these films. And I think that's well, what Joshua Oppenheimer has done is ranks amongst and I, I don't say this with any bombast I think it's one of the one of the sing one of the greatest achievements I think in film
in certainly in documentary film history so definitely the look of silence um can i say you, you know you're going to enjoy this film of, of course of course of course i can't but um it's a fascinating look at the dark side of humanity what's your name therese therese Ballivant. and yours carol the night is like a lovely tune beware my foolish heart but should our eager lips combine then let the fire start for this time it isn't fascination or a dream that will fade and fall apart it's this time it's love, my foolish heart. Okay, so next up was a film that I saw towards the latter end of the year, and it was one which I, I can't say I, I, didn't, I didn't have kind of any expectations for it, I, I didn't really know much about it, and um. It kind of came along under the radar, as it were, and I thought it was uh, one of the probably the most moving experiences I had um, of the year. And the film in question was, was Todd Haynes's Carol. Now, starring Kate Blanchett and Rune Marnie, this was a story about two women who fall in love in New York. I think it was, I believe it's set around about the 1950s, and a film has been kind of floating around almost being made since about 1997 as I understand and um, I can I can kind of understand why it might kind of fall into this kind of development void because I suppose it's kind of one of those where this film has got award season accolades written all over it and I would imagine there was a lot of independent companies looking to pick it up and just trying to trying to find the right time or get the right people on board to have it done properly I should imagine was quite hard and I think the kind of the time this film has spent in development has served it well because this was easily I think could have just been a kind of run-of-the-mill Oscar bait theme, uh, film. It was filmed on Super 16mm and I, I, that was I think something which kind of drew me straight into it. I'm not kind of trying to fetishise um, the film over digital but it instantly had an aesthetic that i was completely into it kind of if you're a fan of mad men i suppose and and, and that era it, it seems to be set in the same time period and i i found it a, a, a really moving and deeply involving film um as i understand it was um well it was written by patricia highsmith it was um actually kind of semi-autobiographical i believe she re um, released it under a pseudonym it was, it was just, I found it really touching because obviously you have this two women who fall in love. Kate Blanchett is a lot older than the Rooney Mara character, but um, Blanchett plays the titular Carol. And she lives in a time where being a lesbian is instantly invalidates any kind of parental claim you have to your child. And her husband, who is still very much in love with her and altered to let her go, resorts to having to kind of go down the route of using the fact that she's lesbian against her and 
this film, I suppose, I mean, obviously times have moved on then, but obviously we still do live in an age where, you know, kind of transgenderism and gay issues are still very much in the public ether. And I feel this film was an important reminder um, of how far we've come and how far we still have to go with that regard. But I, I definitely found it to be one of the most moving um, love stories that I had seen in a long time. And it, it never kind of went into the schmolch territory, which sometimes, which I was kind of fearing it was, because like I said, I think this was one which kind of could court, it could have been made to explicitly court that award season market. And I, I think it manages to avoid falling into that trap. And I think is actually something which is, I think it's a film which is a lot more subtle than perhaps it, in lesser hands it might have been and throughout it I was completely gripped um, as to kind of where the story was going and again it's always a sign of a good film when I mean almost two hours this completely flew by and I, I kind of wanted it to go on a little bit longer I felt I could have stayed in this world that Haynes um, has created for another hour at least and uh, I think definitely nods need to go to Blanchette because uh, and you know Rooney Mara as well is a fantastic actress but I think Kate Blanchett just shows in this way I think she is one of the best actresses of her generation certainly working today she has a classical Hollywood star look about her she is she's stunning in a way which I think goes kind of completely under the radar it's, it's, it's just there is a, a real kind of dignity and timelessness about her, which I, I, I find endlessly rewatchable. So that was Carol. Now, next up was a film which, this was a strange one because I spent this entire film waiting for something to happen that didn't actually happen. Now, the film I'm talking about is Ruman Oslin's Force Manure. Now, we often hear, unfortunately, in modern society a term which never fails to anger me in some respect and that term is man up i think it's one of the most annoying sentences in the modern vocabulary because you know what does it actually mean i mean i've recently had issues with one of my teeth and one afternoon i was in a state of utter agony i can honestly say it was the most painful and miserable experience i've ex i've gone through in a long time now the response from a, from one of my colleagues about was Oh, that I just needed to man up. You know, what was I meant to do with this tooth? Kind of rip it out of my bare hands or tie a brick to it and drop it? At the end of the day, my tooth fucking hurt and everyone within a 10 mile radius was going to hear about it. However, there is a kind of question and that one can't deny that I, I can't, I, I have actually asked myself before, which is, are there in certain situations ways that a man should behave? I often see, um, kind of in my Facebook feed as well, this kind of share if you agree type bullshit that, and a lot of them um, tend to kind of have, you know, share if you think a man should behave like this. This is one I actually saw recently, and I kind of thought this is kind of a reverse kind of sexism play. Um, you know, define what being a man is, and I, I, I think in many respects it's actually kind of quite impossible as soon as you're trying to kind of like pigeonholing people or kind of expecting them to live up to some kind of rules or conventions i think you're kind of meandering into the dangerous territory so which kind of brings me back to force manure because this is a film in which a family go on a skiing holiday and one day that family's sitting down having lunch and we suddenly hear an avalanche warning and 
far off in the distance we begin to see a wall of snow heading towards them. And what happens? Well, the father, Thomas, decides to get up and run away, only he leaves his family sat at the table. Now, the avalanche harmlessly dissipates before it actually does any damage to them. However, the damage has been done as wife Ebba cannot let this go. Now, Thomas is by no means the perfect husband or is he the perfect father to his children, but Force Manure really got hold of me and would not let go. I was absolutely transfixed by this film because for the most part, it keeps you on tender hooks that there is something going to happen just around the corner. And it was brilliant to see this character played brilliantly by Jonas Barr, um, Cahoon, I think his name is, is pronounced, because at one stage during the film, he has a full on breakdown. And I mean, the mother of all breakdowns. I have never seen um, a character cry like this before. And the scene goes from being moderately amusing to massively uncomfortable to actually quite poignant in a way. Um, I, I was kind of in the end, I was rooting for Thomas to kind of redeem himself. And I, I, I'm not gonna kind of spoil the film by saying what happens, but Force Muir I thought was a masterpiece of using the, the tricks of film and cinema to really kind of draw you in and keep you dangling because it worked perfectly for me and I was I, I've read a lot of people who have kind of been quite dismissive of this film saying that they felt it was kind of a one-trick pony or the fact that it was kind of didn't really lead or go anywhere and I, I really do tend to disagree with that I think this is a brilliant character driven film in which over the course of two hours you see the dynamics and fabric of a family torn apart and possibly put back together again. I, I, I'm, I'm still not quite sure about the ending where I kind of think that it's going to go. So one thing I knew already about this Sebastiao Salgado, he really cared about people. After all, people are the salt of the earth. Okay, so next up was the Vin Vendors um, and Juliano Rubinio Salgado documentary The Salt of the Earth about the Brazilian photographer Sebastian Salgado. Now, um, I, I have to be honest with you, I'd only seen a few images of Sebastian Salgado. I didn't know who he was, I didn't know the first thing about him really, um, other until I watched this film. And you may recall a few years ago, um, one of my favourite documentaries of that of the year was um, McCullen, the film about Don McCullen, the war photographer, which was pretty hard film to get through it has to be said it's, it's not the not the most um, uplifting of films but Salt of the Earth was kind of in a similar vein um, but it was infinitely more I think hopeful and joyous than McCullum which didn't say I still think McCullum's a brilliant film but what I found about this film was the fact that a lot of kind of photographers and artists in general when they talk about their work they talk about it to me sometimes in, in such an abstract way that I don't really know what they talk, they're talking about. They seem to kind of grasp at meaning, which I, I struggle to see sometimes. And what I found about Salgado was when he was talking through his pictures, I instantly got what he was trying to do. And it was, it was so 
enriching and enlightening as I was watching the film because he would talk about, I mean, there's this bit where he goes up to, to shoot uh, walruses up in the Arctic and he's kind of prepping the camera and he talks about what he's hoping to achieve on the shoot. And when you see the pictures, you see it perfectly. And I've gone through and I've looked at some of, some of his kind of the projects that he does. And this is someone who kind of immerses himself in worlds for a few years. And he's, his topics range from kind of like working, you know, people who work in really kind of hard jobs, you know, like foundries and shipbuilding yards. Or he goes out and he tries to discover kind of the earth in a state that he imagined it was in when it was kind of at the point of creation. You see it there. And what I found so uplifting was about the film was the fact that Salgado it renders in Salgado's son who's, who's co-directing, but they frame his story with the story of a project where he took over his father's farm, which was... Um, back in Brazil and the area around the farm had fallen completely into scrubland it was just because of you know kind of human interference basically all the trees had died off the rivers had stopped flowing and this very much followed Salgado's life he would go out to obviously some fairly horrendous places and this would obviously cause him to um, reflect very deeply on the world we're seeing and he was obviously very troubled by it but in order to kind of get himself out of this rut that he was in he decided to launch a conservation project at his father's farm and what you see over the course of the farm is how the entire landscape around this place suddenly comes back to life and it is the, and it's a strange because obviously it's a good metaphor for him himself and i found this film to be joyously uplifting i was so pleased and happy by the end of it some of the imagery and some of the photography in it is absolutely stunning i've managed to pick up a couple of salgado's books and just even if you don't see this film simply go, go on google images and have a search because there's some absolute beauties in there and just i i want to get some prints of them and put them up in my house when i eventually get around to uh, decorating it but yeah that was um the sort of the earth uh, you're late. Sorry. You will be. This is all I ever dreamed about. To be used by you. I love you. Up next was a film, this was my number one film for a very, very long time until I kind of went back and rewatched it and I'm st I still think it's absolutely brilliant. But I, I decided this year when I was doing my top 10, I was gonna be just completely honest. I think last year, I was try was it year before, I think I was trying to be a little bit clever and I was omitting films, which 
Um, I probably enjoyed more than the ones that I put in my top 10, but I was trying to mix it up. And this year I've just gone from the heart, really. So at number two, the film which, this was the first one of the year that I went to the cinema and I was like, I know full well that film is going to be in my top 10, if not my favourite film of the year. And it is Peter Strickland's The Duke of Burgundy. This came out just at the same time as Fifty Shades of Grey. And you can probably, I think in a way that's quite an amusing time to release it because on paper what you have is an S&M uh, love story between two lesbians um, who basically one of them is, they, they continually play this game of role play and one of them pretends to be um, domineering over the other one and very cleverly this film completely kind of throws that on its head and the Duke of Burgundy could obviously have a few people saying oh it's going to be you know quite kind of racy and sexy and it is quite sexy it has to be said but not in I don't think in a kind of a titillating way I think it was genuinely quite erotic but that kind of the eroticism and perhaps the kind of the people going into kind of think that they're just going to get to go and see a couple of girls going on it are going to be heartily disappointed because what the Duke of Burgundy actually is is a love story first and foremost and it is a quite brilliant love story because what lengths do you go to to please the one you are in love Michael Haneke um, obviously his film Armour which I found um, really hard to get through and I remember chatting with um, Rudy Obias actually when he was on the uh, Master Cinema cast and he said yeah but you know, that is, it's such a love story and it kind of, he was like you know, that's what you do when you really love someone and I thought yeah of course you do it is a, it's a love story it's a pure love story you know, it's called Armour for Christ's sake you know, of course it's about love and what you do to please that person and the Duke of Burgundy I think goes down a very similar path um the characters Cynthia and Evelyn um, are just there's something ultimately tragic I think about the lead character uh, Cynthia played by CDC Babbitt Nudsenik the uh, Danish actress one of those examples where this performance I think is probably so good people don't even actually notice it because the strange thing about Dukenbergi for about 15 minutes I was sat there thinking oh god this film uh, isn't very good the acting's terrible and then it completely um, kind of threw that back in my face um, for a reason which I won't um, go into which you, which you, you know, if you haven't seen it you, you, you might know I don't, I don't want to kind of ruin it for you and from that moment in I was completely drawn into this film and what I loved about The Duke of Burgundy is because you can't really say when or where it's set and there's a kind of a strange thing going on where there are absolutely no male characters in this film at all it almost seems like an alternative reality. I don't know if that's what Strickland was going for. He's certainly a filmmaker who I think is, is really um, kind of going under the radar a little bit. I feel like he, he should be kind of far more out there in the public consciousness. I mean, Bavarian Sound Studio was another one that I really enjoyed. And this film is utterly beautiful. And I mean, just stunning. It had a great soundtrack by um, Cat's Eyes, which, which kind of reminded me of you know, films I've seen in the you know, scores I've heard from the 70s, but it's had a really kind of like interesting mixture of themes and songs in it, which I just I, I was just completely in love with. In fact, it's one of my favourite albums of last year, actually, the soundtrack. But what I think happens with the Duke of Burgundy, which is I, I think for two thirds is utterly brilliant, and then there's a part I think about an hour and ten minutes into it where. I, I 
feel like it kind of almost runs out of ideas and tries to kind of fill this kind of void with quite cryptic and at times baffling um, sequences in material which just threw me a little bit I wasn't quite sure whether or not I'm, I've, I've, I've watched it out three times and each time I'm not sure if I'm kind of missing something entirely or the fact that the film is just kind of it's just kind of padding things out a little bit and I do feel it's ever so slightly to its detriment I don't think the Duke of Burgundy when I first watched it I sort of thought it was kind of a bit of a masterpiece but I think on repeat viewings it's not like it's it's it's, it's got worse it just hasn't quite lived up to what I was hoping for and I, I it seems to be kind of hovering around I think there's a there's a great film in there somewhere at the moment it's a very 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 good one um I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure um, how I would improve it or what I would do differently. I just feel it slightly loses its way. But all being said, uh, I absolutely love it. It's a film which I, I think, just on Blu-ray as well, does it justice, especially you know, when we have it projected. It, it looks gorgeous, it sounds gorgeous. It's funny, it's erotic, it's incredibly romantic and it might not be the most mainstream of romances that you're going to see. It's a hundred times better than Fifty Shades of Grey. I can certainly say that for uh, for, for certain. I, I, I feel this film should have got a lot more plaudits than it got as well. I mean, the, the, the performance is brilliant. The direction is great. I mean, you're never going to... I mean, you talk about variety in Hollywood. You're never going to see Peter Street. I mean, Peter Street should be nominated for an Oscar for this film, for, for directing. That's just hands down. He should have been... It trumps anything that got um, any of the best director nods that got that happened. Um, actually, probably with the exception of Carol. I, I believe Dot Haynes was nominated for, for, for that. But it's... Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful film, and I, I, I wish that it, it kind of got a little bit more attention. But all being said, um, I think it's got cult hit written all over it. I think this one's going to be around for a while, and I think people are going to kind of pick this up and uh, enjoy it for many, many years to come. Which leads me then to my favourite film of the year, and it's a film that I did actually do an episode on last year, and it was It Follows. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy. Just having some sort of freedom, I guess. Jay, I'm sorry. Help. You're not going to believe me, and I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, Help. it's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. What exactly is supposed to be following you? I don't know. Just pass it along. You believe me, right? Nothing's gonna happen. Everything's okay. There's something wrong with me. If it kills her, it goes straight down the line whoever started it.
gonna be here sooner or later. Um, I've gone back and watched it again, and yeah, okay, it has its issues, but I still think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, it was kind of the, the unexpected film that came out of nowhere and completely blew me away. Uh, I, I, like I said, I think if you want to kind of hear um, my, my kind of slightly longer thoughts on it, go back and listen to that episode and, and uh, I go into it in a lot more detail, but I will just leave it for now. I, I think It Follows is the best horror film I've seen in many, many years. It, was ba- it, it, it gets the, a good mixture of homage and homage and originality bang on and crucially becomes its own thing and yeah it has a it has that kind of carpenter on steroids track. it has um a brilliant poster um which i just kind of like takes you back to those early 80s um horror films but i had a great time with it um i've the, the ending still creeps me out i i i i, I can I, a few weeks ago um i had to get a late train home and I was on the platform and this fog had come rolling in and someone started walking down the platform quite slowly towards me and yet it's, it freaked me out, it creeped me out and it's ridiculous, I mean obviously I knew this person wasn't kind of some supernatural killing machine, I certainly hope they weren't but it, it's still, you know, the fact when a film can get under your skin like that and uh, I watched it with my girlfriend actually and she was terrified. It was brilliant. It was just such a great time seeing, you know, genuinely um, enjoying scares like that. And I'm not a massive horror film fan. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not a big, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't watch that many. And this one, I, I, one of the problems I find is they all kind of, they all come back to the curse. And of course, It Follows has the kind of the curse. But a lot of these films, you know, they kind of, they go back and you, you there's, there's something they all kind of they all kind of fall into a category for me sometimes but they seem very very familiar but it follows i guess does have um troops from basically every teen horror film that's been made since the 80s but like i said crucially it does something a little bit different and it surprised me and i think it's really really well directed by david mitchell as well so my number one film of the year was it follows again i'm really sorry it's taken what six months for me to do my best of 2015 next year we'll try and get it out a little bit earlier but uh yeah so that was it uh, let me know if there's anything in there which you kind of strongly disagree with or should have been in there i like i said i don't think 2015 was a vintage year um 2016 i don't think has been so far although i have got a stack of films that i need to get through so hopefully things will pick up Sound is often, I think, a slightly underappreciated part of film. 
And we are, of course, always aware of it from dialogue to music to simple sound effects such as birds singing or a song on a radio. Its sudden absence in a film can be equally quite startling. From Saving Private Ryan to No Country for Old Men, whenever a filmmaker removes sound from scene, we naturally become more aware of other senses, i.e. in this case is the impact of vision. A wounded soldier screaming in silence on a beach takes on its own horrifically effective abstraction from what we would normally become accustomed to. We don't, need, we don't need to hear him screaming, we can fill in the blanks for ourselves in a way that's infinitely worse. And yet rarely, and I speak um, in this, uh, of my own personal experience, do I ever think about sign, sound design in that greater detail after I've seen a film. If I've liked a piece of music or a song, I will invariably seek it out and add it to my Spotify playlist. But really, I don't tend to dissect a film's sound design on any kind of particular level. Um, now I'm a massive fan of the home cinema experience. I have a decent 7.1 setup in my house and I'm looking to move into the realm of this newfound Dolby Atmos with its apparent even greater cinematic immersion. I will update you in due course once I've kind of upgraded all my equipment. But if I'm watching the likes of Captain American Civil War, I want to hear bullets whizzing past my head and indeed I recently went back and watched Alien on Blu-ray and the sound of the Nostromo with its creaking and bleeping really added to the enjoyment of the experience. And of course it's kind of the point, the, the filmmakers are trying to extend what's going on into the screen out into the space you inhibit. Yet the film I'm going to talk about next is a rare example of film sound design that not only extended the world of the film out into the screen but also connected the characters in that film to what is possibly the darkest chapter in human history. Now, Leslie O'Neill's debut feature is the Oscar-winning Son of Saul. The film depicts the titular Saul who is forced to work as a Zonda commando in a death camp, I think it's Auschwitz, I don't know if it's ever made explicitly clear, uh, during the Second World War. Now, his existence consists of shouting at other prisoners, disposing of the dead, and doing essentially the awful job that the Nazis did not want to do themselves. I think it's important to note as well that the Zonda commando weren't collaborators, they were forced into this position and were indeed as much as victims as the people whose bodies they were being forced to dispose of. The film for the most part is shot in a medium close-up of Saul as he walks around this hellish world. What we do see around him is normally out of focus, we just see the piles of dead bodies but we can't make out any kind of real individual features. We see victims being pushed and screamed at, running from one place to the next, yet we never dwell too long on any particular one person before they are murdered by either being gassed or shot.
Now, you can imagine it's a deeply disturbing and upsetting film. Indeed, Son of Saul is an experience that I think only a psychopath could probably enjoy. And I would say the key word here is experience. Now, what really defined this film for me was its sound design. Um, and I think sound of, sound, Son of Saul is the first film I've seen about the Holocaust where I actually felt audibly presents the horror to us. As a counterpoint to it, I went and watched Gio Pontecovo's Capo, which in some respects has a quite similar story. Though Capo kind of, I think, shoehorns some kind of elements of kind of rather melodrama into there. But it is, its sound design is incredibly muted to say the least. It's a story that is told through its dialogue and through obviously the normal conventions of cinema, you know, shot, reverse shot and whatnot. And the, ho the wider horrors of what are going on are discussed but never seen or heard. Now, Having visited Auschwitz a few years ago, I can honestly say it had a profound and long-lasting impression on me. The sheer scale of the place was utterly terrifying. Now, I didn't find it that hard to imagine how it would have been like filled with prisoners and the cacophony of the suffering would have probably beggared belief. Indeed, I could, in strange enough, I, I, I couldn't believe that such a horror could take place. And I don't mean in a kind of Holocaust denial type way, but it was just staggering to me that such a place could actually exist and so many people could have died there. And I think Son of Saul brings the Holocaust to life in its sound. And this, when you get, once you've actually been to these places, you realise this was murder on an industrial scale. And it was an experimentation in human suffering that really to think about how this place was designed architecturally specifically to make the killing of people as efficient as possible is truly hideous and with this design becomes this almost industrial sense of design and scale which I think is captured in the soundtrack you can hear the very machinery of death hydraulic lifts take the bodies up um, so they can be cleared out of the room and the next batch of victims brought in you can hear fires burning to get rid of the evidence, generators whirling to keep the whole thing going. The effect is utterly terrifying and when you add to this as well the seemingly random shouting, the barking of dogs, the random gunfire that might be someone simply being scared or shot at rather than shot, the cries of those people who realise what fate is about to befall them. And the Nazis were experts at keeping what they were doing completely secret and I think what Son of Saul does is capture in a very terrifying sense those who are arriving at the camp this sense of, I suppose, confusion and fear, and then I think a slow realisation of what they were probably at the very depths of their mind hoping wasn't, wasn't going to happen, which is the fact they were going to be killed, and it gets this, and I think, bar none, the film's most hideous sequence comes when some prisoners are taken to the pits, and these are essentially just a crude hole dug in the ground where they either shot or burnt alive, and 
as Saul moves his way through this crowd trying to look for a rabbi, we know as does Saul what is going to happen and you can hear it on the soundtrack and I've, I've gone back and I've watched it twice now and you can hear this noise slowly getting louder and you begin to make out individual sounds amongst the, the noise as a whole and what, so, what makes this scene so affected is that the dramatic tension is built, to me at least anyway, through the fact that we know what's going to happen because obviously we know history, we know what this means and that the sound design is making you consciously aware of the fact that these people's lives is about to end very soon. We've all seen the pictures and the images, we've all seen the newsreel footage, but we've never heard the Holocaust like this. Now, Neem shoots the film in a 1331 frame, or the Academy ratio as it's known, and you cannot help make the comparison between the framing of this and Claude Lozman's Shoah. Now, Shoah was a film that featured no archival footage, it simply relies on the people involved in it telling you about what is going. And I think Son of Soul, almost the kind of the soundtrack of Shoah in a way, because when these people are describing these horrific events, that's how it must have been, that's how it must have sounded. And in a way, I felt like I was seeing one of these stories brought agonizing to life. And Saul's life within the camp is just simple survival. His passive, passive face belies the fact that this is human who is just simply desperately trying to survive and exist. I, don't, I didn't mistake his lack of emotion to be apathy. I simply found it was, I simply felt it was more acceptance of the fact that this was his, his situation. I think that Saul's played brilliantly by Giza Rohig, the, the actor who you know, probably wouldn't be in contention from Oscars, but he doesn't have a great deal to say. I think performances where it's based mainly on, on expression possibly get overlooked, but I thought it was a mesmerising performance. He clings to this shred of humanity, and I don't, I, I'm not going to ruin the film by kind of saying what it is, perhaps you can guess by the title of the film, but what, what struck me as well is the fact that Son of Saul is by no means a redemptive film, it does not offer any you any hope or nicely rounded off narrative that shows even amongst the horror, humanity will somehow come shining through. I think the Holocaust is tragically something which, although we don't have it on the scale repeating itself, it does happen. We do have these genocides that kind of tend to kind of crop up in human existence. And I think Son of Saul really expertly takes you there cinematically. Its soundtrack 
is one of suffering. It moves beyond the screen to the audible space of the modern cinema with its sound effects that, which aren't disposable in this case. They, they remind you that there is consequences to a gun going off or the, or the sound of a flame throwing you. A lift moving isn't just a lift moving. Contained within that lift are, are many bodies and you know, a door slamming is literally one of the last things the people are going to hear in the film. And I think when you begin to think about it on that scale, it's an ultimately quite disturbing experience. The thing that kind of struck me really as well when I was thinking about some of the stories, I, I can't really work out how good a film I kind of think this is. I, I, I simply don't know. I know it had a profound effect on me. I know that it bothered me. Um, and I guess that's one of the, the great things about films. That, yeah, they can amaze us, they can move us, they can inspire us. And they can also shock and humble us. Now, you don't really equate being shock and humbled with an enjoyable experience. But I certainly think that Son of Saul is an interesting lesson in the power and effectiveness of sound within a cinematic context. And for that reason, I can really recommend checking this out. I'm, I'm sure it'll be out on Blu-ray quite soon. I think it might be quite interesting to, uh, if you do have a home cinema, to watch it. And I think, I, I listened to this film um, with the volume cranked really high up and I, I think it I think it needs to be seen in that context. So I, I would recommend it with caveats. This isn't going to be a Friday night cheer that's going to kind of um, wash away after the minute you've watched it. But definitely, I think Son of Saul, just for the way it looks at this this horrific subject and its angle into it i thought was very interesting and deserves to be looked at and in a kind of slightly i suppose by focus i suppose basing a review based around a, a film sound design is a slightly strange way into it but i'm trying to kind of look at new ways i can discuss films in an interesting manner so please let me know if you think i've succeeded Made toward the latter end of what could modestly be described as a successful career, Akira Kurosawa's Ran was made in a time when high concept cinema was beginning to rule the world. The multiplex had arrived with its 16 screens, power ballads, wading over end credits. You can easily imagine that Ran struggled to find its place when you're coming up against the likes of Back to the Future, Commando, Rocky IV, The Goonies, Yet even in this age, Ran managed to be a successful film, and time has only done it more favours. Away from the kind of obsession with the commercial success of a film, cultural trends and critical fashions, great films have an uncanny way of writing themselves into cinema history. And I think Ran is one of those. Loosely based on Shakespeare's King Lear, this wasn't the first time that Kurosawa had tackled Shakespeare. He'd also gone there with Macbeth, and there are elements of Macbeth in Ran also. Ran does not feel like it's a play being made from the screen. This, I think, is epic cinema at its best. The film centres around a warlord called Hitorio Ichimoji, who, who decides to divide his kingdom up amongst his three sons, Taro, Jiro, and Saburo. Taro, who is the eldest, he will receive the biggest castle and also become leader of the clan. The other two sons, Jiro and Siburo, will support Taro in ruling this new empire. 
Hitoria lectures them on the importance of unity and he does this by giving them an arrow. Well, the one instance he gives them an arrow which they're easily able to break. He then decides to give them three arrows and see if they could break them, which they obviously can't. Saborio manages to see through the folly of this and sm smashes the arrows across his knees and tells his father he is being reckless and stupid. He then takes this disloyalty and banishes his son. Quickly though, Taro and Juro descend into civil war and Hitoria's once great kingdom descends into civil war and barbarity. Taro's wife, the Lady Kadir, wants to plot revenge against the aged Hitoria for massacring her family and forcing her to marry Taro. She ends up becoming this Lady Macbeth type figure by trying to influence Juro. At three hours, Ran is an epic film. It is beautiful, it is bloody, it is, to me at least, one of the most impressive visual spectacles that I've ever witnessed. And it's interesting because Kurosawa is rightly considered to be one of the greatest directors who has ever lived. And like many, I believe, I think my first exposure to him came through watching Seven Samurai. And I have to confess I wasn't overly mad on it when I first saw it. I know that I enjoyed it, but I think possibly the running time was something of an issue for me given the fact that I was watching on VHS and on a 14 inch screen I don't think really helped matters but my next experience came to it when I saw it on the big screen and it was nothing sort of a revelation to me and in the years that are following I've gone on and I've watched almost all of the films that Coruscant has made most notably those who are coming through the Criterion collection my personal favourite being High and Low Many, I think, associate Kurosawa with being a director of just samurai films, and although I think these are his most iconic, especially his collaborations with Tishi, Tishio Mifuni, I would beseech anyone we to kind of go off the beaten path, as it were, and look at some of his less celebrated works. Um, in fact, I would probably recommend that you just watch all of his films, because they are all, I think, quite brilliant. I can't really think of a single one. Possibly Dreams, I think, might be the only one, which I don't think is a particularly great film, but... Ran was made at the latter end of his career. It's, it's interesting to note that Kassara at this point in his life had become deeply reflected um, as to what kind of a legacy he would leave and what he'd actually achieved as a filmmaker. And he was, according to his daughter, spending a great deal of time thinking about his legacy. And it seems strange to think that um, one in his position would even feel this is something he needed to think about. Um, I, I think it was probably quite indicative of the humility of the person himself, but Ran was funded in large part through European money, most notably that of France, and Akira Kurosawa was struggling to find money for his films in his native and yet abroad he was still very much revered. And th that being said, this wasn't simply a case of a load of French fanboys giving him as much money as he possibly wanted to. They were Serge Silverman, who was the producer of the film, did crack the whip in some respects. There's a quite a famous incident where um, Kurosawa wanted to film a shot, reverse shot, um, which he was denied permission before, and this may seem quite strange to deny someone um, being able to film a shot, reverse shot, but the reverse shot was a hundred kilometres away on another mountain, and um, he apparently was extremely upset by this, and it, it took him a lot of talking around to realise that he couldn't just go off spending money willy-nilly. Now, budgeted at $12 million, the money is there to be seen. Ran is, I would contest, a film that probably benefits a little bit from having um, a set of producers behind it, because in the age of the auteur, if you give them 
as Heaven's Gate has shown, if you give them unlimited cash, often you can end up with a disaster. And I don't mean the fact that Heaven's Gate's a disaster of film, far from it, but it's the type of thing that can just spiral out of hand and probably Corsara may have need reining in a little bit, but what one of the things I love about it is if you think it was kind of filmed on another planet, you might not be too far off the mark because it, for the most part, it was shot on the smouldering slopes of Mount Fuji and it's iconic culture is notably as but instead we just have the blackened soil seeping smoke and it does give the film an oddly theatrical surreal look and I almost feel it's almost kind of post-apocalyptic in some ways and in many respects I think that's exactly what Korosara was going for because as Itora has given away his kingdom its descent into war and anarchy has been almost immediate what struck me going back to Ran was just how bleak a film it was. And in reality, this isn't really that surprising to me given Corosara's previous works. Take, for example, Rashomon. Contrary to what you might think, Rashomon is not a film about three people trying to exonerate themselves. Each is placing themselves at the focal point of the film's crime. At least two have to be lying. Why are they doing this? How bad is their torment that they feel compelled to do this? And I think in a way, it's very revealing that this is the position that the film takes. And during those early scenes in Rad, where we see the suns trying to snap the arrows, you kind of led into a false sense that Hidatoria is someone who is wise. The message is stay together and stay strong. And He's trying to get this subtle lesson, and I think, in a way, it's almost like trying to show his humility. Yet, and Korosawa even shows a scene where Hitoria falls asleep, and I think one of the sons cuts a small piece of tree off and plants it next to him to shade it, shade him from the sun. And you kind of feel that this old man has kind of an endearing trait to him, that he, you know, he falls asleep like all people do, and he tries to be wise and humble with his children. Yet. Hitori is not a kindly old man at all, he is a monster. His reign was characterised by horrific levels of violence and personal vendettas. His kingdom is littered with people whose eyes have been plucked out of their sockets, their houses burned and their relatives killed. For Hitoria, Ran quickly descends into a personal hell. He is shunned by his own children. He is confronted with the victims of his past. Those around him are killed. His most loyal companion is his jester who gently reminds him of the folly of dividing up his kingdom. Literally storms rage around him as his appearance, as his appearance resembles more skeleton than human form. Kurosawa, to me at least, is showing us the consequences of our past actions. Hitoria demands that his children care for him, yet paradoxically has done nothing to really earn their love and affection. His daughter-in-law, Lady Keita, has a bitter hatred of him since that he stole her family castle and murdered the family. I think despite the fact that this film has a historical setting, there seems to me something that it harkens back to the post-war Japan. The end of World War II represented a defining moment between two contrasting worlds. Japan was devastated and then occupied. The social barriers of the countries had been stripped away. Even hearing Emperor Hirohito's voice was inconceivable prior to the Japanese surrender. 
And it was a country that was being forced to atone for its past. And the relationship between the old and the young had obviously changed quite greatly. And it's a recurring theme, I think, in the works of like Ozu. And I believe it's echoed in Ran. Hidoriya simply assumes his previous position will guarantee an easy retirement. It doesn't, the past immediately comes to collect. And modernity, I think, is also highlighted in the film's use of weaponry. Yes, we see cavalry on horseback and bows and arrows and swords, but we also have the gun, and its very presence signifies a titanic shift in the tactics of battles. Kurosawa repeatedly shows us the pageantry of war. We see vast armies amassing on hills in pristine formations, only to have them decimated by rifle fire. The gun renders traditional armour pointless. In fact, it makes killing even more inhumane. And this is the world on the brink of entering the machine age, one where the skill of warfare and the art of warfare is being replaced by the mechanics of modern combat. And death, when it does occur, is with little fanfare or pageantry. Lady Cady is killed. She's simply beheaded. The splatter of blood is grotesque and over the top, yet is indicative of how de-romanticised Kurosawa's film is. There is no final monologue for her, no chance of redemption. It's a brutal, swift execution. We often romanticise the past, and I think we try and attach values to it that we feel are lacking in the modern world, things like chivalry, honour and loyalty. And we lament more civilised times. Yet I, I believe this is completely illusionary and the past is really just like the present and Kurosawa shows this in the film. I don't think he is romanticising this age per se. I think is easily his most pessimistic and bleakest works. And there is a scene where I suppose the, the film stand out where his son's armies come to attack his army in the castle and Kurosawa pulls all the sound out of the scene and all we have is the music by Toro Tometsuguchi and the carnage plays out in this I suppose the overused phrase would be kind of slightly belaic way but what you have essentially is just armies just massacring each other in this new age of conflict and the music and the choreography produce a scene of cinema at its most purest we don't need to hear the screams and the dialogue to convey the horror of what is occurring. And what's more is that what you get out of Rand is a feeling that what is occurring isn't going to make the world a better place. There is a form of mutually assured destruction that the power vacuum leaves and anyone who steps into it will kind of likely then find themselves embroiled in another hideous war. Rand is even more relevant now because it echoes what's going on in the Middle East. If you remove vile dictators, from power, what invariably ensures is even more war. I mean, let's take, for example, Iraq, Libya, and now Syria. These were all bound together by iron rulers, and now they are bitterly divided into various rival factions. Ran loosely translates as chaos, and in this world, it's hard to see where the carnage will end. Hedatora has created essentially what is a catastrophe for this world. Ran is epic, it's also intimate. Kurosawa used three static cameras for the most part to film the scenes and the result is that moments between characters unfold very little cutting into. This allows you, I think, to interpret the space between the characters and the relationships between them 
more easily, I would contest. The blocking provides you with all the information that you could possibly need. Take, for example, when Hitori visits Lady Kato and Taro, and he sits cross-legged before them, and Taro and Lady Kato are now the ones in power, and he is subservient to them. The dynamics of power and authority have shifted utterly. Compare that to the scene where, at the beginning of the film, where Hitori holds court, he is at the centre of the action. Everyone else around him is representing a portion of his empire they're also completely transfixed by what he is saying in Jura's castle he is a mere subject title and landless he has become by his own mistake admittedly but he has neither the power or the authority to take any of it back the film was mostly shot using 50 millimeter lenses and you're able to see really far into the images there's not much um shallow depth of field and the results are simply stunning there was one moment in the film and i actually posted it to my instagram where i had to actually pause it and rewind it and go back and just see these armies amassing on the hills and kurosawa makes you feel that this world could go on forever and it's worth noting that the framing was so tight that literally centimeters out of shot you would see evidence of the modern world be it a house or a road but he was but to me, Rand feels like it's set in some kind of mystical kingdom. We don't see large population centres like towns or villages just imposing castles and landscape. And I think it was quite interesting that the film had three cinematographies because I can easily imagine it being an absolute nightmare to set all the various shots up. And the film did actually win an Academy Award for its costume design. And overall, the film's colour palette is quite muted apart from the, co the costumes. They kind of leap from the screen in many cases. And it's interesting because a lot of his films were, were in black and white. And there's something almost quite, quite off-putting or slightly garish about Ran when you, when you first see it. It's almost too bright, um, perhaps even jovial to agree, yet... I think it per the, the costume design perfectly divides, um, helps you differentiate between the various clans. And there have been some complaints about the film that the, um, the costumes are, are not authentic, but I, I don't really care. I think they look absolutely incredible. Um, it was released to great critical acclaim. It was a huge hit in its native Japan. And Kurosawa may have been 75 at the making of Ran, but he once again showed why arguably he, he is one of the most important filmmakers Japanese, Japan has ever produced, if not the most important. It's just staggering to me to, to know that the film, you know, there was over 1,400 exes, hundreds of horses. In an age where you, you did have this shift going over to high concept cinema, it's, it's in, Ran harkens back to the days of you know, David Mlean and Cecil B. DeMille and on Blu-ray it was something of a revelation to me. The f package comes loaded with extras, some fascinating documentaries that I think have been put out by Criteria before but there's um, some, a feature length Chris Marker film which has been very interesting. The actual transfer itself, um, some might say it's a little bit soft, I, I personally think it, I, I actually thought it looked fantastic. Um, this is by no means it's not kind of like the colours don't pop off the screen like it's quite muted apart from apart from the costumes but overall um, Ran looks and sounds fantastic that score is absolutely stunning um, Studio Canal done a really really great job for this and um, I don't know will this film look any better on 4K if it ever comes out I don't know but for the moment this is the version of Ran to, to own and I really cannot recommend picking it up enough. Okay, so that's going to be this episode 
of the 24 frames cast um i will return quite uh, hopefully very soon um i've got a few episodes in the pipeline i need to work out what's going on with adobe audition and why i keep losing vast chunks of work but hopefully all these things will be sorted out many thanks for listening you can find me also on the masters of cinema cast with Joachim. we're on moc.blogs.com you can follow me on twitter at 24 framescast you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com you can find me on facebook i'm Tom Jennings, I look slightly miserable standing by the Berlin Wall. So do befriend me. It's always nice to kind of see what you hear, hear and see what people are up to. So do drop me an email as well at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye.